When the girls double book hosting duties for visiting family, they have to come up with a sleeping arrangement plan. This won't be easy, but they're willing to eat through the night until they solve the problem. Reminiscing about past sleeping arrangements, the girls take us on a journey through the years, leaving us asking, what side of the bed does Blanche really sleep on? When does Dorothy go to work? What's Floppo's situation? All of that and more in today's episode, Bedtime Story. Shh. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just It's a lovely evening, and Sophia, unable to sleep, is going to town with spices, sausage, peppers, pesto sauce with pasta, and a ziti with oil and garlic. What, is she going on another walk in the morning? In her extra-light pastel, perhaps nightgown and apron, Sophia is happy to inform Blanche, who has just come in in her usual teal PJs and everyday orange floral robe, as to what she's up to on the stove. Also unable to sleep and also cooking is Rose, who in her silk pink with lace trim robe is also unable to catch some Z's. Coming into the kitchen, Rose is delighted by the smell of the place, not because of all of the dishes Sophia is preparing, but because of her chipped beef. Chipped beef is a type of salted and dried beef, kind of like sandwich meats, which can then be served with a cream sauce. I grew up with a form of this, not chipped beef, but cream tuna on toast. If I explained it to you, you'd probably gag, but if my mother made it for you, you'd probably love it. Coco, ever had chipped beef? Or creamed chipped beef on toast? I've always wanted to try chipped beef. That's surprising uh, you haven't. Well, I first heard it called sh- on a shingle. Uh-huh. So I was just not interested in Not after drawn that. to that. <laughs> and just even seeing it on screen in this episode, it was um it's an unattractive meal. When Sophia is offered some of Rose's dish, she's appalled, asking if she looks like Beetle Bailey. Beetle Bailey is a goof-off army private who has been the star of his own comic strip since 1950. Since blank on a shingle is a meal usually served in the army and consists of chipped beef and sauce, Sophia can't help but compare herself. Oh, look, it's Ellen. That's good. I'm going to remember that. If you have the desire, why retire? I like that. Bursting into the kitchen in her, like, almost white bluish or perhaps grayish with dark trim pajama and robe duo is Dorothy. And she has the most exciting news. She just got off the phone with Uncle Vito, which wasn't news to Sophia as she was already listening on the line. See, children, back when we used landlines, there was a little trick which would allow you to listen to the private conversations of anyone in your house. You want to hear what your mom is talking about with her friends? Well, from another room, very slowly and very carefully pick up the phone. You may be able to be a little extra and push down on the little receiver hang-up button, and then you can lift it up in an even quieter fashion and have the phone already on your ear. 
If the other person didn't hear the click because you are so skillful, you can just listen away. But be warned, if you are in too small of a space, a.k.a. my childhood home, the voice could easily echo, especially when cordless models came out, and then you'd be busted. In addition to the phone call with Vito being news, he's also coming to town and he'll be staying at the house. This will be happening Thursday through the following Thursday, but there's an issue with Dorothy's plan of staying with her mother when Vito arrives. Rose was planning on staying with Dorothy because that's when her cousin is in town for the 14th annual Hog Expo. It may be surprising to learn that Florida has over 45 annual fairs and livestock shows. (laughs) And Dorothy just can't believe it's already the 14th year of the Expo. Sarcastically, she sings Sunrise, Sunset to acknowledge the rapid passing of time. Sunrise Sunset is a song from Fiddler on the Roof. It takes place during a wedding, and the song reflects the feelings of the parents about life passing too quickly. Ready for some real fun facts? B. Arthur, along with Mr. Burt Convey, were part of the original Broadway cast for Fiddler, B. playing Yenti and Burt as Perchick. Cutting her friends singing off to point out that there is a real issue, Blanche asked them what the plan should be. Dorothy isn't stressed about it. They've always had things work out for the best. She has but one caveat. She doesn't want to sleep with Rose, which is not only rude, but weird, as we just learned she had already had a conversation with Rose about them sharing her room. Her reasoning for not wanting to bunk with Rose, she talks in her sleep, which is not only an annoying sound, but seeing as Rose is no Dick Cavett whilst she's awake, she probably isn't all too entertaining when she's asleep. Dick Cavett was a talk show host who, while still working today, was best known for his groovy interviews with the biggest stars through the 60s and 70s. His low-key demeanor and easy conversation led to some amazing interviews, one of my personal favorites being his chat with one of my favorite people, Janis Joplin. I'm not much on on, on sports. Did I seem to walk strangely as I came out here tonight? Hmm. I should have watched closer. <laughs> well, and you were back no, there, but yeah. I did. I, I water skied for the first time over the weekend. Did you, did you get and up? I, I, that's what they always ask, isn't it? I water skied. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the sensitive thing. I water. I water skied 15 times for approximately eight seconds. <laughs> Even as Rose tries to defend herself about talking in her sleep, Blanche backs up Dorothy's claim. She even adds to it, saying she not only speaks, she snores. Ah, but she's mixed it up. It's Dorothy who snores. I love when people get defensive about how they sleep or what they do in their sleep. It's our most vulnerable position, and there's nothing we can do about our behaviors during that time. Additionally, we're asleep. We don't know what we're doing. Yet, if you tell someone they were snoring, they will almost definitely fight you about it. Snoring is caused by relaxed tissues in the back of your throat, which rattle when you're asleep. It isn't a health issue, unless it leads to sleep apnea. But health issues can lead to snoring. So if you or your bedmate is a snorer, like my grandmother who once cleared out an entire hotel because of her snoring, they may be able to alleviate the noise via weight loss, not drinking alcohol, or simply sleeping on your side. Can you approximate your grandmother's snore, please, in a, a way that I could maybe enhance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to have to have like that much going on and you're sleeping through it. 
prove to Dorothy how bad her snoring is, Blanche starts to use a metaphor, comparing it to the sounds of a drunken sailor in a sleazy motel after a night of boning. Forgetting she's using an example and not telling a personal story, Blanche slips into, and then I had to wait around for the cab. For Sophia, it isn't about Dorothy's snoring. It's about all of them having their own quirks when it comes to bedtime. To prove it, she brings us to the first flashback of the episode. There had been a string of cold weather, and to make matters worse, the heater had gone out. This moment in the show may have been inspired by a real event known as the 1985 North American Cold Wave. After an unusually warm December, cold air was gathering in the polar region, building up pressure until it finally snapped, spreading abnormally and in some cases record cold temperatures. The size of the event meant even Florida wasn't immune, leading to a record low of 34 degrees on January 22nd. Desperate for warmth, Dorothy sneaks into the smallest room, home of the smallest bed holding the smallest person, and curls up with her mother. Being half asleep, Dorothy's rustling triggers Sophia. Thinking she's talking to her late husband, Sophia tells Sal to take his shirt off so he doesn't get linguine all over her if they're going to fool around. Which also, I mean, there's so much there. Dorothy's about four times the size of her father. Sophia's saying that to her daughter. Sal would go to bed with pasta on his shirt. In my mind, it was like hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, I just pictured like on his shoulder and like yeah, his she, belly. She wakes up to noodles softly brushing her face. <laughs> Ooh, I'm into that. You know how I feel about pasta. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Horny for noodles. <laughs> Not as appalled as most people might be, Dorothy ignores her ma's dirty talk and tells her to go back to sleep. Now fully awake, Sophia sees it's her beautiful daughter who has come to her side for warmth and comfort, so she screams at her to get the hell out of there. Even as her own flesh and blood begs to stay because she has the only electric blanket, where's Blanche's heating pad, by the way? Sophia still isn't moved and only gives more reasoning as to why she doesn't want her there. She's a heat sponge. Sophia will freeze to death with her there. Fine, then, Dorothy says. Just turn the blanket up. Are you crazy? It's already at a blaring nine. At ten, you can cook a lean cuisine. Lean cuisine is the lighter version of microwave meals from Stouffer's. They require a few minutes in the microwave or a much longer time under an electric blanket. This cooking method is not recommended. Ignoring her mother's pleas, Dorothy snuggles up and tells her to go to sleep. Before they can, Dorothy's eyes pop open and she starts to laugh. The heat being out reminds her of a time it happened when she was seven and they were living in Brooklyn. Twaddling on, Dorothy goes into great detail about how cold she was and her doll, all while Sophia's eyes stay closed. Pushing the limits, Dorothy then starts to reenact her little girl voice, and in a moment I think most people have lived through with either a parent or family member when you think you're having a sweet moment and reminiscing, and they are totally annoyed, and like Sophia, say, they want you to cut the crap. I love how perfectly B plays the hopefulness in her eyes about her mother engaging in the story, and then the total disappointment when she is shut down. Once again, they try to get back to sleep, but this time they're both interrupted by Blanche, who, in her brown fur-trimmed jacket, is also desperate to get in on that sweet, sweet electric blanket action. But her request is met with a choir of no from the Patrillo women. 
begging to be under the blanket, Blanche goes on. She's never been so cold. Her bed has never been so cold. Both shocking, especially for a Saturday night. As soon as she crawls under the covers, Blanche hears a noise. Yeah, Sophia farted. Not her problem. Y'all are the ones in her bed, and she will do as she pleases. But Sophia's gas wasn't the noise the girls heard, although they are wide awake now, airing out the blankets as to not Dutch oven themselves. Well, what Blanche thought she heard was the heater coming on, and it sort of was. With Rose's arrival, we get the full story. She was messing with the heater, and she got it to come on. The only problem is that what came on was the air conditioner, not the heater. So now Rose will go from a genius to killer. Or maybe not. It is very much not recommended to use an air conditioner when it's less than 50 degrees outside. So in this case, she might just break the thing and they'll be fine. Or the air conditioner can get all wacky and actually produce somewhat warm air. Both scenarios are not ideal. Even though she's to blame for the house getting colder, Rose invites herself into the bed. For crying out loud, the bunny on her slipper has an icicle. Once in bed, the bunny has sought warmth up Blanche's butt. Finally all settled into bed, it's time for them to get some sleep. As a play on the Waltons' good nights, Dorothy replaces the names of the kids with the names of two of the three stooges, Moe and Larry. They were known for, well, not their smarts and not their not annoyance, so the names seem pretty fitting. After just about three seconds of peace, Rose awakens and starts to bitch about which side of the bed she usually sleeps on, and Blanche joins her. I don't know why they didn't just switch. And I don't mind that you wouldn't be able to sleep on the side you want, but I really would struggle with not being allowed to move. I'm a roller, baby. Sophia, whose bed and sleep they are disrupting, doesn't understand the complaints. Back at home, four people in bed was a luxury, as the others were stuck with eight. While it's all a joke, it's sort of a southern oh boy when she continues. She did have to share a bed with two brothers until she was 17, a nightmare, and was even engaged to one for a bit. While that seems like a joke about how close they had to be, gross, she implies there's another story to go with that, and Rose would like to hear it. Frankly, I would like to hear it. With all this going on, Dorothy has had it. And using her growly teacher voice, she not only puts everyone in their place, but she gives us all a little bit of a plot whoopsie. Didn't Blanche just say how cold she was, especially for a Saturday night? And didn't Dorothy just say, she has to get up early in the morning? For what? Sunday school? Perhaps it was more so one of those mom lines to get everyone to shut up. Just as everyone is finally comfortable, Rose has forgotten something. Assuming she means to go to the bathroom, annoyed Blanche tells her to just go in her pants. But it isn't pee she's worried about. It's another pee. Prayers. Getting on her knees by the side of the bed, Rose starts to pray. Praying they could all just get some rest, Dorothy tells her not to worry about it. Besides, God is so busy dealing with Pat Robertson, he could use the break. Pat Robertson is the shriveled, sentient scab that has ripped vulnerable people off while hosting the 700 Club since the mid-1960s. It's his incessant thoughts and prayers that have occupied God's ears all these years, leaving people like Rose having to squeeze their prayers in when they can. Fun fact, Pat's dad was a senator, and one of his pieces of legislation, the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, which takes tax money from ammunition sales to protect wildlife, is still in effect. So perhaps Pat was just a one-off in his rottenness. Oh, uh-huh, what's that? Ah, 
His dad was also one of only 19 senators to make a statement against Brown versus Board of Education, allowing for desegregation. Oh, I see. Well, here are some of Pat's most godly moments. Amen. I'm talking about the cheating. He cheated on you. Well, he's a man. Okay. There's never been a civilization ever in history that has embraced homosexuality and uh, uh, has survived. There are a bunch of people who are just bums, and if these people are out drugging themselves, let them starve to death. You've got a couple of uh, same-sex guys kissing, you like that? Well, that makes me want to throw up. America, if you want to bring the judgment of God on this nation, you just keep this stuff up. Having gotten the whip handle, if I can use that term, then to instruct their white neighbors how to behave. Now, that's critical race theory. What is this mac and cheese? Is that a black thing? It is a black thing, Pat. Well, you could become a Muslim, then you could beat her. Pat Robertson leaves behind the empire he built on comments like that, retiring at the age of 91. Praying in the form of a phone conversation, Rose starts out by apologizing for the late hour, giving her full name before showering God with compliments. After letting out her own, oh God, out of disbelief, Rose tells Blanche to wait her turn. As Rose goes on, she shares that she's grateful, but also has a lot of questions, like why poverty exists and what the spokesmodel category is on Star Search. Star Search was a talent competition show hosted by Ed McMahon from 1983 to 1995. Unlike the singing competitions we've been saturated with for years, Star Search allowed for not only solo singers, but groups, and in multiple genres. Additionally, they had categories for dancing, comedians, and yes, spokesmodel. This was basically a mix of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition combined with a pageant. Now, do you plan to uh, continue your modeling career, or are you going to get married and have a family? <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll have a family sometime, but I'm a little bit young. I'm only 21, and I think I'll wait a little bit. But... You've got plenty of time. All right. As sweet as it is to hear Rose's prayer of gratitude for her friends and wishes for them to be protected, the girls are tired. So in an effort to make this nightmare end, Dorothy pulls out her Ben Gazzara impersonation and starts talking to Rose as God. Thanks. Now, uh, go to bed. Shocked, Rose leaps into the bed just as Blanche leans over to Dorothy to compliment her quick thinking. But the nearly asleep Dorothy denies having done it, panicking Blanche into a prayer. Back to the future... The girls are still sitting at the table, laughing about the ridiculous positions they had to sleep in that night. Well, Rose and Dorothy are laughing. Blanche didn't find anything unusual with those positions. Moving on, anxious and hungry Blanche inquires as to when Sophia's food will be ready. Well, lucky for her, she doesn't have to wait. Rose's chipped beef is all ready to go. Blanche is grateful for the offer, but she wanted something maybe hot or spicy. Well, lucky again, Rose's beef is both. Knowing what's really going on with Blanche's avoidance, Sophia tells it like it is. She didn't want to eat your crappy food that's going to make her gag. As Sophia makes Blanche a plate of her food, Dorothy shows some support for Rose and offers to take a helping of the beef. As she starts to fix the plate, thunder rolls outside the window. Rose hates thunderstorms. Perhaps she suffers from astrophobia. Astrophobia is the fear of thunderstorms, and according to Nationwide.com, it only affects about 2% of the population. 
Well, that brings up another good point as to why Blanche doesn't want to sleep with Rose. She gets nervous about everything, and when she's nervous, she's a pain in the butt. Why, there was that night when Rose went all Ellen into Blanche's room. Are you serious? In our second flashback, we find glamorous Blanche in her bedroom, putting a dress away in the closet while looking fabulous in a white silk and lace nightgown and a robe that looks like it was made from leftover comforter and pillowcase fabrics, with green and coral abound. Having a seat at the vanity, there's a knock at her door. Frantically, Rose, in her purple and white robe, comes into the room, and she has news. She just heard on the radio that two killers have escaped a prison in Georgia. For as worried as Rose is, Blanche is blasé. Why should she worry about some killers that escaped in a different state? For Rose, the answer seems obvious. We aren't from here, and we were drawn here, so those guys might do the same. As in, they're looking for eligible men, Blanche inquires. It's clear to Rose that Blanche isn't taking her or the situation seriously. So, like me having talked to anyone I care about, certain my existence is a burden, she apologizes and starts to leave. Blanche didn't even correct her when she said, sorry to have bothered you, something that would have caused my insides to squirm. But Rose can't carry on the act. She can't leave. She doesn't want to be alone. Murders have always scared her, like when she was younger and she heard about the St. Olaf slasher, the killer of scarecrows. There wasn't a St. Olaf slasher, but Minnesota was home to the weepy-voiced killer Paul Michael Stefani, who, from 1980 to 1982, killed three women and attempted to murder a fourth. Luckily, he was caught and sent to prison until his death in 1998. He wasn't a slasher either. He used physical attacks, stabbing, and drowning as his means of violence. He earned his nickname because he would call the police to not only admit his guilt— but plead to get caught with a crying or weeping voice. At the end of her robe, Blanche gives in and lets Rose stay. As Rose starts to get comfy, Blanche goes back to her vanity. It's time to pluck her eyebrows in the fashion of Miss Christy Brinkley. Christy Brinkley is a supermodel who not only had famous gigs with Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and CoverGirl, but was in a very public and famous relationship with singer Billy Joel, who, yes is known for having big eyes. And that baby Blanche is referring to is Alexa Ray Joel, born in 1985. She has followed in her father's footsteps and is now a singer-songwriter. Rose doesn't really mess with her eyebrows. This isn't news to Blanche. She knows she doesn't because she looks like Wilford Brimley from the nose up. Wilford Brimley, the famed actor from Cocoon, The Thing, and Diabetes commercials, Diabetes. had some classically old guy eyebrows. They weren't any more notable than any other guy, kind of lacking shape, color, taming. It certainly didn't warrant such an attack on Rose. Josh, you're a big fan of the Brim. He's in one of your favorite films. He's in John Carpenter's The Thing, one of my favorite films. Uh, he's great in that. He's young. He doesn't have a mustache in that movie, which is very disorienting. It's jarring. He's also in another 90s classic that I saw in the theater with my grandma. <laughs> Hard Target starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Nice. Was he the bad guy? No, he's Jean-Claude Van Damme's like uncle. Oh. You see Wilfred Brimley on a horse going all the way fast on a horse with a bow and arrow and like a house explodes behind him. <laughs> It's it's a John Woo movie. It's John Woo's first American oh. movie. So he 
It's went got nuts. all the stuff. Jean Claude has a greasy mullet. It's amazing. His name is Chance Boudreau <laughs> because his mama took one. <laughs> kind of a name is Chance. My mama took one. Jean Claude Van Damme is the hard target. Finally ready for bed, Blanche takes her place on the left side of the bed. Whoopsie. They are in the exact positions they were in when everyone was in Sophia's bed, but this time they're not arguing about it. After being told to go to sleep, Rose starts to give thanks to Blanche, who has no interest as she simply wants some peace. Even with her light left on and her friend at her side, Rose is still tense and needs Blanche to tell her a story. Did she not hear how nannies raised Blanche's kids? I mean, I don't take her as the bedtime story type. Blanche hesitates at first, but once Rose nearly screams, make one up, she gives in. She starts with bears, which is rejected, as are pigs. Settling on elephants, Blanche continues. They were dolls who made Rose feel safe. Then, annoyed at Rose, they left and let the two convicts break in and murder Rose as she slept. This lack of compassion from Blanche leaves Rose terrified. Throwing the covers off, she runs to the closet, hiding from the pretend story. When we come back from the break, we're back at the table where the ladies have enjoyed a hearty meal. But, um, what the heck happened that night? Let's get some fan fiction here, either about Rose building a fort in the closet or her going back to bed with Blanche. Maybe the convicts show up and they have to fight them. We need closure. Ooh, like a don't breathe, but you're rooting for the old guys and it's golden girls. It's like a couple of older women at home and they have to like protect their house. One is blind, one is deaf, and one is mute <gasps> like the from three dementia. Little pigs. That'd be rad. Write that down. No good deed goes unpunished. The good deed in this case being Dorothy's willingness to have Rose plate her some chipped beef. The punishment? Rose asking if she liked it, then forcing her to take another bite because she's certain she didn't actually have any. Making quite the gesture of friendship, Dorothy starts to take a bite. But then the prayers she was definitely saying in her head came true and the power went out. But only for a moment. Just long enough for Dorothy to put the chipped beef in her mother's purse. So when the lights came back on, she could be primly dabbing her mouth with her napkin. Changing the subject, Dorothy reminds them that they are discussing what to do when their family comes for a visit. Blanche says they should sleep with Sophia, but Dorothy disagrees. They've been doing it her whole life and it's always fine. That is, unless Dorothy is sick. In our third flashback, we find Dorothy in her bed, Sophia watching over her. The sad transition music is playing, so you know things are serious. Dorothy has bronchitis and needs her medicine. Luckily, her fever has broken. Since Sophia can't read the small writing on the prescription, she asks Dorothy to do it, two teaspoons every six hours. But Sophia disagrees. Does this mean she's been giving Dorothy the wrong amount of meds? I wouldn't be so dismissive, Sophia. Pharmacists have to take two years of undergraduate classes, followed by a four-year program to earn their Doctor of Pharmacy degree, so they are kind of doctor-ish. As the ladies quarrel over the medicine, Sophia can't help but be annoyed at Dorothy's bad patient behavior. But perhaps she's more annoyed that she's been sitting in a chair for three days worrying about her baby girl. It's not like she was watching her all those hours just to paint her portrait. Mumps, chicken pox, whooping cough, rubella. Dorothy's had it all, and Sophia got her through it all. 
Rubella is an infection that is accompanied by a sore throat, mild fever, and a rash that starts on the face. The name Rubella is Latin for Little Red, so I highly doubt their cleaning lady had that name. Pretty neat that most of those things are gone thanks to vaccinations and science. In the timeless mother-daughter dance of acting out, then acting hurt, the prickly Dorothy has made her mother feel unwelcome. So, dramatically, Sophia, in her floor-length yellow housecoat, starts to make her way to the door, waving her hands and shaking her head. Not wanting to hurt her mother's feelings or to be left alone, Dorothy, in her floor-to-throat-length white nightgown, uses her words and physical strength to bring her back. That was the other funniest moment of the episode, was Sophia's physical comedy yes her waving of her hands that slow walk across the room her eyes are closed the head is shaking oh my god i love you said you said if you ever did that to me or if you ever walked out of a room like that oh boy oh so much trouble i would know i was in trouble silent (laughs) arms waving like from behind (laughs) yuck and it's true she's like absolutely faking being like oh fine i'm not wanted it's such a dance, and I think every mother-daughter has that. I think a lot of relationships have that, where you just develop these habits, and it becomes your tango. And it's like, okay, I know I pushed too far being upset, so now she's going to act like she's mad and leaving, which just means she needs to be validated with love, so I'll make sure she knows. And that's life. A liniment is just a pain-relieving ointment, usually oil-based such as the one Sophia used on Dorothy when she had colds as a child, made with cod liver oil, garlic, petroleum jelly, or Vaseline, and parsley. Everything had its purpose, except for the parsley. That was just for the presentation. Mrs. Doolittle, Dorothy's doll from the first story, makes another appearance as she was the guinea pig for Sophia's tincture. To show Dorothy it was safe and wouldn't hurt, Sophia would first rub some on the doll. This would bring Dorothy out from hiding, and she would take the medicine. This soothing story of love being told by Dorothy in the chair has lulled Sophia to sleep, who happened to have laid down on the bed. Back to today. Sophia greets us with an oh boy as she defends herself for falling asleep while taking care of Dorothy. She says that she was using her eye resting trick, which she used on Sal, but it only worked half the time because... Oh boy, men are built to not care if you are awake or not. Oh honey, husband or not, consent. This is not something America's doctor, Art Uline, taught when he made his many appearances on the Today Show, Tonight Show, or Mike Douglas Show. He was there to give medical advice, usually related to one of the many nutrition and diet books he wrote. On today's health, rosacea, a skin condition that afflicts about 5 million American adults, Dr. Art Uline is in our Burbank studio this morning with some advice on how to recognize and treat it. Good morning, doctor. Though there's no, though there's no cure for rosacea, early therapy is important to prevent the scarring and nodules that can develop if it's ignored. If you have severe acne-like sores that don't respond quickly to therapy, I'd recommend that you see your family doctor or a dermatologist without delay. Mary Alice? As Dorothy wraps up her story, complaining about having had to sleep in the chair all night after Sophia fell asleep in the bed, we're all left wondering, hey, why didn't you just crawl into the other side of the bed? And wasn't this supposed to be a story about how you and your ma slumber party so well together? Blanche doesn't have those questions, though. She has a comparable story of pain. No, she didn't sleep in a chair, but on a wooden bench at a train station. 
Sophia is only half shocked at Blanche's statement. She knows she'll do it anywhere. Laughing off the confusion, Rose reminds her that it was the time that they were taking the train home from their friend Edna McCartney's funeral. This is shocking news to Sophia. She didn't know Edna was dead. Now that dollar she sent in the chain letter will be gone forever. A chain letter is nothing more than a pyramid scheme on paper. While nowadays our scams are done via phone calls, DMs asking for your cash app, and emails, but before we had those things, it was letters. The usual setup would be that a list would appear on a letter. You were to send money to the people on the list, then send out the same list, replacing your name at the bottom so you could become the recipient of money. But according to crimesofpersuasion.com, about 95% of participants never saw even a dollar. So don't fall for it. Or the panty one. Panties? Many times in my life, I was sent a chain letter from friends, and it was uh, for panties. So instead of sending a dollar, you were supposed to go buy, like, a nice pair of underwear, like, in between lingerie and, like, everyday panties, and then send that to the person. So then you were supposed to get, like, 12 new pairs of panties. Did that work? I always threw them away. I didn't care. I always threw the letters away. <laughs> After hours on a train, the girls had finally made it to the Apalachicobee station just in time for their transfer to the Miami train. Greeting the train station manager, Dorothy asks what track they'll find their train. Well, a fun fact for that station, they only have one track, but it's called number 19. It's a great conversation starter for those waiting for their trains and those waiting for tornadoes to strike. And I'm sorry, I know that that's too soon, given everything that's going on in Kentucky and the surrounding areas. If you would like to help those affected by the December 11th storms, you can do so by visiting Feeding America, GoFundMe, or you can Google Team Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund, where monies will go directly to the hardest hit communities. Realizing just how country bumpkin this location is, Dorothy jokes to the man to tell Andy and Aunt B hello for her. They, of course, are two of the main characters from the classic sitcom The Andy Griffith Show, which was set in the very rural, very southern town of Mayberry, North Carolina. I had no idea it was in North Carolina. I don't think I ever knew that, too. I always knew it was Mayberry, of course, but I don't think I ever put it anywhere. Yeah, I assumed it was like, uh, I assumed it was New England or something on the East Coast. I don't know why. Oh, how funny. I always thought it was probably like Oklahoma or Arkansas or something. Well, golly, Pa. <laughs> That's pretty neat. That is neat. Randy Bennett, the station manager, has had quite the career and not only as an actor. He was the art director for Evil Dead 2, did some directing for The Nanny, was an actor in Nurses and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. On top of that, he did voice work for the new Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, and in one of my most favorite films ever, the original Toy Story, Brave Little Toaster, where he was the voice of the computer. I can process words accounting to in my pixel screen displays for you. Computer graphics locked into your memory. memory. As the girls make their way to the platform with only a few minutes before their departure time, the station manager informs them their 915 train left at 845. It's what Apalachicobee is famous for. Their town seal, no, not the symbol representing the town, but an actual aquatic seal, has our trains leave early printed right on him. Sadly, he can't play the horns, but he does balance a ball on his nose. 
I love the twisted, rapid-fire nature of this conversation. First, it seems like Rose is dumb to ask if the seal is an animal, but then it is. It really is like the Twilight Zone, which had several great episodes involving train stations. And one about a seal. (laughs) Wait, did they? Desperate to get out of this nightmare, the girls ask when the next train to Miami will be departing. Hearing the station manager say 6 a.m., Rose giddily asks, does that mean it'll leave at 5.30? Like a creepy carny whose jigsaw-inspired riddle had just been solved, the man smiles and gives Rose a big, welcome to Appalachachobie. Now, not only have the girls been to a friend's funeral, but they're stuck in a train station for the night. Blanche isn't as depressed as Dorothy. She's actually feeling introspective. Edna's funeral had her thinking about how fast life passes you by, and she should try to be more adventurous. Dorothy can't fathom what that would even involve, seeing as the Kama Sutra had to create a supplement just for Blanche. As previously discussed, the Kama Sutra is a book of sex positions most look impossible or unpleasant. Gmail us! I'm really enjoying the funeral fashions going on here. We have Dorothy in her purple and green sweater over a white collared shirt and a tie. Blanche in what appears to be in the Hawaiian shirt one of the guys was wearing when they were shipwrecked under a gray jacket with matching pants. It is all fabulous. Blanche then corrects Dorothy. This isn't about sex or men. This is about living life. So Blanche asks Dorothy, what's something that she wants to do that's out of her comfort zone? So she opens up. She's always wanted to go to a nudist camp. First off, don't worry about checking that box. You'll do it later in the series. Secondly, stay out of it, station man. You don't need to be all sassy and tell her, some big pots belong on the back burner. What a gloriously passive way of saying, that's a big dream, but some, like you being nude, maybe shouldn't be pursued. Speaking of burners, Dorothy's got one when she asks if he has a cousin he should be dating. When Blanche hears a train arriving, she's confused. She thought they had missed the last train. Ah, but that was the last train to Miami. This train is going to Sarasota. Then, just when it seems things can't get worse and the girls try to make do by sleeping on the train bench, this nightmare turns from a bad dream to a waking landscape from hell when the train passengers start to unload. Turns out, it's the circus train. At first, it's just one clown. One clown in a black suit, yellow shirt, polka dot tie, orange hair, orange nose, black mouth, with black ovals for eyes. Funny, he looks exactly like my sleep paralysis demon. As the almost asleep Blanche gets a look at him, she thinks it's Rose, and she really needs to go get that makeup off before she tries to sleep. Blanche's speaking jostles the other girls, and they watch, in horror, frankly, as the room fills up with every kind of clown imaginable. Tall clowns, short clowns, lady clowns, top hat clowns, all of which the unflappable Rose sees as a sign of good fortune and hope. And what Coco saw as a hilarious moment. I, I mean, what I don't even know. It's just it's just an amazing image. Because you hadn't seen this one, right? I've never seen it. Yeah. Never that seen was it. so fun to watch with you because I knew, obviously, that was coming. And when that first clown hits that doorway, I literally felt like I was in the audience in the 80s with you. You let out this, like, laugh scream. It just exploded out of me, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, 
because it, you know it's just the anticipation is so great at that moment. It's so it's just oh, it's ripe. It's and it's which the... I know I I know what that means. <laughs> the way they manage the tempo of it, because we've already had like these big laughs with the station manager. It's settling in like they're all laying down and you're just like, oh, they're just going to have to wait the night out. And you're kind of like, oh, that sucks. So you've even relaxed with them. And then, boom, that guy hits the doorway and it's like, oh, this is going to be something else now. Maybe the thing I've laughed the hardest at so to this point. Yeah, in the I series, think so. It was just, my God. <laughs> Approaching her doppelganger clown, Rose asks in the sweetest way if he could do anything to cheer up three gloomy gusses. Barely turning to face her, the clown tears away his nose and tells Rose to get lost. He's on his smoke break. <coughs> Playing the clown is an uncredited Charles Bouvier. Acting through the 80s and 90s, Charles had a handful of roles in some classic programs, such as Coach, Married with Children, Melrose Place, Knott's Landing, Family Ties, Beauty and the Beast, Mr. Belvedere, Night Court, Hill Street Blues, MacGyver, Falcon Crest, St. Elsewhere, and Taxi. He'll also be back with the girls in 1993 as Mr. Fisk on Golden Palace. Coco, you might know him as Thurman from the 1992 low-budget monster film Seed People. Have you ever heard of this film? I'm sad to say I have not heard of this <gasps> film as far as I know to this point. Please tell me about it. That's shocking. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, I have the trailer here as a... Oh, wonderful. This is the creature I saw in the room with her, Heidi. We can't be sure about anyone anymore. Oh my. Yeah, I've never seen that. Ew. <laughs> it looks really upsetting. It's real wet. Yeah, it's a big ball of something rolling around. That woman had a neck, neck vagina. There was a lot yes. of stuff splurching around all over the place. I just heard, I just heard a little bit of the music and it was it sounded wet and slimy. <laughs> and with that, Rose made her way back to the girls as they huddled through the night, dodging the looks and evil spells those clowns were surely trying to cast on them. That is, except for Blanche. She was charmed by a floppo the clown, and they actually dated for several months. Boy, her tastes are all over the place. I guess it was the clown shoes she was most attracted to. Turned out, old Floppo had a flopper of his own, as Blanche implies his feet, which were the size of his clown shoe, correlated to the size of his penis. We've discussed before that shoe-to-penis measuring isn't exactly accurate, but when you're dealing with someone who has a 16-inch long foot, you're definitely in for some clown, and then over, upside down, spreading. And then while, and then he, once you... And then the ladies, being up all night, have eaten all of Sophia's food but haven't come up with a solution for the sleeping arrangements. Blanche recommends they all just pitch in and put the guests in a hotel. I'm sure with her frequent user credits, she could get a pretty good discount. Getting Sophia's opinion about the hotel, it turns out she's discovered the hidden chipped beef in her purse. Now that she's dressed it up with some seasonings and it's had time to marinate in her bag, it's really not that bad. You know, most episodes have pretty straightforward moral takeaways, but not this one, which is just another example of the show's greatness. Last week, we ended with a heart-wrenching phone call between a mother and daughter. This week, we ended with a grandmother eating chipped beef out of her purse. And that's life. 
This show has lasted because it's real. We all have our funny slumber party stories. We've all had those nights we can't sleep and end up talking all night with a friend, reminiscing on times that in the moment seemed unbearable, but in hindsight are pretty funny. And perhaps that's the biggest takeaway. Even when you're having the worst night of your life, you'll get through it. And when you're in your 60s, you and your friends will be sitting around a table sharing those stories. Because stories are what life is all about. Well, stories and whatever Floppo had going on in his clown pants. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we'll discuss what it's really like to be the mother of a solid gold dancer with Forgive Me, Father. Coco, did you ever listen on other phones? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing interesting ever happened. Never. It was just my mom talking to her work friends. So boring. So boring. <laughs> my mom's a real dork. <laughs> That's my mom. Oh, really? Mom's getting roasted today. <laughs> Desperate for warmth. Dork. Des- dorky. I don't mind that as much as I would struggle. Money, please. You chipped your beef. Ah, I didn't like that. You just got to find someone that does the same tango as you. You can't be with a swing dancer and a, you know, Lombada. I saw West Side Story. So (laughs) I know how it works. I know how that works. (laughs) I chipped my beef. Got some old ass drawers. That's right. Things are tattered. That's right. Like an old uh, pirate ship sail. Thank you. But tiny and cute on your buns. <laughs> After hours on a train, the girls had made it to the Akalak. <laughs> I second that. <laughs> that they look terrible or people should Gmail us about their experiences? Gmail us. <laughs> I did a mistake. <sighs> this nightmare turns from a bad dream to a waking night. <laughs> Well, here, I'll do two re- two reactions. <clears throat> Dang, that was neat. And I haven't seen it before. Da- oh. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.